We're going to read verses 17 uh, through chapter 4, verse 1. So Philippians 3, 17 to 4, 1. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we ask this day that you would teach us, that you would lead us closer to you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And please be seated. This past year was politically and religiously charged. There were wars and rumors of wars. Many rose, many fell. Some who dug pits fell into them. Some who slung mud had mud slung at them. Some who fought for righteous ideals died righteous deaths. Some who showed no mercy received the same. For some it was the end of the story. For others a new day dawned. Just in the last couple days there have been Two historic deaths, pretty much a study in contrasts. One, a respected former American president, Gerald R. Ford. Known best for granting full and final pardon to Richard M. Nixon. The other, an unrespected ex-dictator who murdered his own countrymen, was brought to full and final justice. Just yesterday morning. It brings to mind the truth that our times are in God's hands. That man knows not his time. And all the more reason to be ready when our time comes. All the more reason to embrace the message of the cross. As most of you know, my wife is from Tennessee. And her parents used to live in California for years, but... 
back in 1994, they retired there to their hometown. And we love going back there every year. And as our family grew, it became more fiscally responsible to drive rather than fly. And uh, we actually love cross-country trips. I think I've told you that before. But on this one particular trip, as we were driving through the Texas panhandle on Interstate 40, I spotted a cross. Now, it was not one of those crosses by the side of the road commemorating a roadside fatality. This cross was about 20 miles away. And as we drove nearer, the cross got bigger and bigger to the point that it was basically looming over us as we drove past. It was unavoidable. It was inescapable. It's called the Cross of Our Lord Jesus Christ. It's located in Groom, Texas. Population, not very many. (laughs) This cross is 190 feet tall. It's the largest freestanding cross in America. The cross is recognized as a symbol of Christianity. It's unavoidable. It's inescapable. It's an unmistakable reminder of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of mankind. Now, a symbol like the cross will naturally have both friends and foes. Because with the cross, you can't stay neutral. It's like coming to a crossroads, an intersection. You've got to go one way or the other. And choosing one way means rejecting the other. The cross is not easy. The cross is not comfy. It polarizes. It divides. Now, in Philippians 3, we see a stark contrast between friends and foes of the cross. Paul clearly identifies those who are enemies of the cross. Paul in Philippians 3 is is really sharing the goal of life. And he says to them in verse 17, Brethren, fitting for us, brethren, dearly beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, whom I care about, whom I love. He says, brethren, join with me. Join with me in following my example. In 1 Corinthians 4.16, Paul had said, be imitators of me. In chapter 11, verse 1, he says, be imitators of me as I also am of Christ. What were they to imitate? You find it right here in uh, Philippians. In Philippians 1, verse 21. Paul said, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He says in chapter 1, verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, 
taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of a man, being found in appearance, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. In chapter 2, verse 21, Paul speaks of those who sought after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But Paul was one who sought after the interests of Christ and not his own. In chapter 3, in verse 7, he said, Whatever was gained to me, I've counted that loss for the sake of Christ. In fact, I count all things loss. He said that his goal was to know Christ. To know the power of his resurrection. To know the fellowship of his sufferings. And to be conformed to Christ's death. That was Paul's example. His example was one of forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. He didn't claim to be perfect. In verse 12, he had just said, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but here's what I do. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, observe. Join with me in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. To observe, it's a Greek word, skopeo. It means uh, to look at, to fix one's attention upon something and then to follow. To go that way. To mark it and to go. They were to pay close attention to the pattern that Paul had given and others had given that had laid down for them. They were to follow that. He says, observe those who walk according to the pattern. What kind of pattern? It was a pattern of godliness. Pattern is the Greek word tupos, which was where we get our word type. It literally means that which is formed by a blow or an impression Hence, a type or an example. They were to follow and to learn from godly examples, such as Paul, such as Timothy, who he had just mentioned in chapter 2, such as Epaphroditus that he had mentioned in chapter 2 as well. It reminds me of being at Grace Church. My family and I have been here a little over five months, and one of the things that God has completely blessed us with is you. You. Your sincerity uh, speaks volumes. Your honesty, your openness, your, uh, your, the love that you show towards one another, to, towards me and my family, very, very evident. It is a reflection of the leadership here, of the elders and the staff and the council. It's a, a great reflection of my predecessor, Pastor Ed. All a reflection of the love of Jesus Christ. What an example. What an example. Paul says they were to be discerning and wise about who they followed. Why? Because Paul said in verse 18, many walk. Many live their lives, many conduct their business. As I often told you, 
This was not a new thing to them. They had been warned before. He warned them many times. He told them in verse 2 of chapter 3, beware. Three times in that verse he says, beware. Beware the dogs. Beware the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Beware. He says, many walk of whom I am often told you. And then he says, and now I tell you, even now, weeping. Tears are, are uh, flowing down his face. As he, as he writes, he weeps. Why would Paul weep? Because they were running roughshod over all that the cross stood for. These enemies. They were degrading the true doctrine of liberty. These enemies. But Paul cared about the church and also them. Why would Paul weep? Paul would weep for the church that would be tempted to go along with them. But he also wept for those who were deceived. We must care about those who go astray. Care deeply. Sometimes to the point of tears as we appeal to those. And care enough to not let them keep going the wrong way. Paul gives them probably the worst title you could have in relation to Jesus. Enemies. Enemies of the cross of Christ. That signifies hatred, hostility, animosity towards the sacrifice of Jesus. Paul was probably referring to two groups that caused trouble in the early church. First of all, legalistic Judaizers. Jews who taught that people had to first become Jewish proselytes and obey the Mosaic law before they became Christians. The other group was licentious Gentiles who trusted in their own wisdom and denied the transforming power of the gospel. Now these two groups didn't necessarily directly oppose Jesus. They didn't directly oppose his work of atonement on the cross or his free gift of salvation by grace through faith alone. Their denial was more indirect. They clearly did not follow Jesus. They clearly did not live godly lives. Basically, they were pretend followers of Christ. That's probably the second worst title you could get in relation to Jesus. Enemy of Christ Pretend follower of Christ. Some may even have had risen to leadership positions in the church. And Paul speaks of their, their God, their gold, their glory. In verse 19 he says, their end is destruction. He speaks of their goal. The object of their life. The the end or eternal destiny of a person. For both groups, the end and the outcome of their lives was eternal judgment. Would be, if they kept going in this direction, eternal judgment. Ruin, destruction, hell. 
They would ultimately experience the ruin of separation from God for eternity. Both groups were headed this way because they depended upon their works to save them and denied the truth of the gospel. Paul says their God was their appetite. Their God was their their belly, their stomach. The object of their worship and devotion, what they were committed to was their own selfish desires. Their appetite, their stomach, their belly. The God of the licentious Gentiles was their appetite for consuming whatever they wanted. Roman eating was very luxurious. It was hedonistic. And while they couldn't escape the reality of the cross, they denied the worth of the cross by their actions. They focused only on their physical desires and unrestrained gluttony. I know this is not the right time to talk about this after we're all thinking about all the things we ate in the last couple of weeks. Their God was earthly things. And therefore their worship was directed at those things. All the things that belong to the fleshly life of humans and therefore perishes. Perishes. Now for the legalistic Judaizers, their God was their belly as well. But not because of what they ate, but because of what they did not eat. They ruled their lives in strict dietary observances that they believed were necessary for salvation. Their religious works got in the way of their accepting Christ's finished work on the cross. They were the dogs and the evil workers and the false circumcision that Paul was speaking to about in chapter 3, verse 2, where he says, beware, beware, beware. In the first century, dogs literally roamed the streets. They were basically scavengers. Because Jews hated Gentiles, they'd often call them dogs. But Paul referred to the Judaizers this way because of their evil and their uncontrolled behavior. They prided themselves that they were righteous. Yet Paul says they were evil. Because any attempt to please God by self-effort draws attention away from Christ's finished work on the cross. And that's evil. Paul says their glory was in their shame. What they reveled in was things they should have been ashamed of. The legalistic Judaizers loved ceremonies and festivals and feasts, other kinds of observances. They boasted about their works. The scriptures tell us those works are no better than filthy rags, filthy clothes, or worse. I decided I wouldn't say the word, even though it's in Scripture. I wouldn't say the word from up here today. Licentious Gentiles, if you want to find the word, it's in Isaiah 64, 6. Licentious Gentiles, on the other hand, loved everything about the world and its many vices. They boasted in their sin. 
They defended their behavior under the guise of Christian liberty. But their God was in their shame. They congratulated what was actually shameful. Their sense of honor and value was upside down. They glorified themselves instead of God. And they prided themselves on things that they should have been ashamed of. Their goal, their God, and their glory all reflected their mindset. Look at verse 19. The last part of that verse. Who set their minds on earthly things. It's not wrong uh, to care about earthly things. In fact, it's right and responsible. But they had begun to depend on these things to gain merit with God. Their mindset was on earthly things. That was their focus. They all were living under the sun. No focus on Christ. If you stop right there, we could all go home depressed. But Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with a description of the enemies of Christ. Paul continues with what amounts to a description of friends of the cross. A more friendly description. Now, he doesn't actually use the title, but the contrast is evident. The authenticity of true believers is validated by the fruit of their life. Unlike those whose end is destruction, Paul says in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. Their goal, the goal of the friends of the cross, is being with Jesus in heaven. Being with Jesus. In heaven. The people of Philippi were living in Philippi while their citizenship was in Rome. Christians, while living on earth, have their citizenship elsewhere too. Our state, our constitution, to which as citizens we belong, is heaven, not earth. Is heaven. So Paul's saying. The Greek word used here refers to a commonwealth made up of aliens and strangers and foreigners. It's used of a city whose residents' names were listed in a book, written down, recorded. Believers' names are listed in the Lamb's book of life. Heaven. That's the place God dwells. It's our home. Our true home. It's our dwelling. Our names are there. Our inheritance is there. We belong to the kingdom of God, where He rules. It's interesting what Paul says. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. Look at, look at verse 20. Don't, don't miss this. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior. 
in contrast to those in verse 19 who set their minds on earthly things. Eagerly waiting for a Savior. It signifies waiting on tiptoe. Tiptoe, waiting expectantly, eagerly. It's like when you haven't seen a beloved relative or friend for a long time, and they're coming to town. They're coming to your house. That's how my house is when Mama and Papa are coming in from Tennessee. The kids are on tiptoe. When we have friends coming over, they're waiting at the window. The Christian's hope of heaven is biblically sure. But it often can be said that Christians don't relish the thought of Jesus' return. They're having too much fun down here on earth. It makes me wonder about my own life. Do I eagerly await Jesus' return? Or am I hoping it doesn't happen until several other things happen first? If I'm honest, I cannot tell you that I am eagerly awaiting Christ's return. I can tell you that theologically. But practically, where I live, that's not the reality. Positionally, spiritually speaking, we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Notice in verse 20, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior. From from where? From heaven. From heaven we wait for a Savior. How can that be? We're here. But positionally in Christ, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That's our spiritual position. To be intensely desiring the things of earth is a contradiction then. We live with that contradiction every day, don't we? Hebrews 9, 27 and 28 says this. It is appointed to man once to die, and then comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. Unlike those whose God is their appetite, the God of friends of the cross, their object of worship and devotion is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They love to hear the name of Jesus. Jesus. He is pre-existent deity. He is God in human form. Born of a virgin. Sinless. Crucified for our sins. Resurrected bodily from the dead. Ascended to heaven. And coming back to establish his kingdom on earth. He is the one we are to hunger and be committed to. Paul was concerned for the true church. The true believers who lived amongst people whose value system was upside down. Much like the world we live in today. 
They would experience this pressure to join with them in the same excesses. And Paul is encouraging them not to be moved away from their position and their honorable way of life. He points them to the security of their true identity. And unlike those who glory in their shame, the glory of the friends of the cross is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.3. Paul says, We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Christ took our curse upon himself on the cross and bought our freedom. Christ's death on the cross is the basis for our pardon. Full, free, and final. It's forever. Receiving a pardon, by the way, is an admission of guilt. We were not innocent. That's why Christ died. We believe that in and through Christ crucified, God substituted himself in our place and bore our sins and died in our place. The death we deserve to die. In order that we might be restored to favor with him and be adopted into his family and be called children of God. In Christ, we're transformed, and we will be transformed. We were dead in sin, now we are alive in Christ. We were crucified with Christ, and the life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for us. He will, as Paul says in verse 21, transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Those who have already died knowing Jesus and are with him in heaven will receive new bodies at the resurrection and the rapture of the church. Those alive when Christ returns will have their bodies transformed. Our new body will be like Christ after he rose from the dead. It will be perfectly suited for heaven. God is going to change us. He's going to change our outward form and appearance. Now, it's not like changing a Japanese garden into an Italian garden, okay? It's not like uh, changing your clothes, putting one pair of clothes on and another pair of clothes on. It's not like changing the color of your house. This is um, a transformation. It's like taking a garden and making it into a city, something entirely different than a garden. When that happens, we won't deal with the limitations we deal with now. Right now, we're humbled by disease and by death and by pain and by sin. But then, our resurrected bodies will be like Christ. Our our sanctification will be complete. He's going to transform us. And those who are friends of the cross, glory 
in all that Jesus is and all that Jesus does and will do. Finally, Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, my beloved brethren, again, my, my brethren, whom I long to see, he's standing on tiptoe waiting to see them. He says, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Again, my beloved, whom I love, whom I, whom I, who's my joy and my crown. He says, in this way, stand firm. In what way? As friends of the cross, joining and following his example, observing those who live biblically, eagerly waiting for Jesus. That cross on I-40 in Groom, Texas, in fact, uh, it's hard to see with, with, uh, from where you're at, but way down in the corner is uh, our, our vehicle, the white vehicle down there, and then my kids are at the foot of the cross. It's a pretty large cross. And it's so big, you can't escape it. It's big. When you're there, you're just like, wow, what a big cross. Um, you can try to ignore it. You can close your eyes as you're driving by. But it's pretty prominent. You wanna, if you try to ignore it, you're going to want to open your eyes and look at it. And as you drive away, the, the prominence of that cross, it slowly dissipates. But its memory remains. The mere presence of that 190-foot cross makes an impact. And here's what I want to say to you today. Our lives, to a world that is perishing, ought to be like 190-foot crosses. Jesus should be recognized in us. His influence in our life so prominent that he is unavoidable and inescapable. The message of the cross is first and foremost to point us to Jesus. Not to make us feel good about ourselves or to help us cope with life, even though those things will come about as a result. But the cross takes away our self-righteousness. It turns us on our heads. It, It drives us to our knees. And the only response is a bowed head and a broken spirit. This passage makes me face some hard questions. Do I live in such a way that the self-denying aspects of the cross are real to me and my family and others who observe my behavior? Am I laying down my life for the brethren? Could I be convicted of being a friend of the cross? Who in my sphere of influence can see the prominence of the cross in my life? My wife? My kids? My friends and family? Or am I too wrapped up in my own thing? Too intoxicated by my own problems? Or prominence? Or proficiency? Or whatever you want to name? 
whether it's giftedness or shortcomings, to really see or desire to reflect the reality of the cross? And I guess the the toughest question for me is this. Do I want to spend the rest of my days on earth in service of Christ crucified? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Galatians 6, 14 says, May it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's God wanting to do amongst us? What's the greatest need you're facing right now? Every answer, every question is answered in the cross. And I am praying that this coming year will be a time of spiritual reflection for us. Where we measure everything in light of the cross. Where we make decisions as individuals, as families, and as a church as a community of faith, that reflect the reality of Christ crucified and coming back. That reflect that unavoidable, inescapable reality, the nature and influence of the cross upon us. Look at your bulletin for a minute. Look at the front of your bulletin. The very front of the bulletin. I'm I'm praying that every that the front of our bulletins will remind us every week and throughout the week, each day throughout the week, that the cross is the attraction. That the cross is where it's at. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we want to live in light of your cross. We want to live in light of all the power of your resurrection. Lord, we want to know you. And we thank you and praise you that you you will answer that prayer. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand with me as we close our time together. I want to wish you a happy new year. It is a great privilege for me to be your pastor. And uh, I want to let you know, next Sunday, Pastor Ed will be preaching. The Sunday after that, on the 14th, we're going to start a new series through the book of Hebrews. Uh, tentatively entitled, The Cross, uh, excuse me, The Christ-Centered Life. But we'll be going through that, and probably it's going to take us a, a big chunk of the year to go through Hebrews. And... My prayer is that God will make us even more Christ-centered and Christ-loving. And that we would love Him and love one another and hold out His truth to a world that is perishing. I want to read one verse as we close. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, 
It is the power of God. God bless you.